It is great to be with you today. Your Bibles are already in John chapter 2, so we'll go there. I have been married to my high school sweetheart for uh, 30, <coughs> yeah, 30, uh, um, <coughs> 37 years. Today is her birthday. Um, she turns 21 today, and um, we've been married. I, I used to say all the time in our church as her birthday would come around, I would say, uh, you know, they knew we were high school sweethearts. We met when we were 14. And um, I would say things like, you know, she's 21, and, and when our kids hit about 25 and 27, she said, Mike, you got to stop that. You look like a creeper. You know, I mean, you, 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 people know we were at high school together. So anyway, we've moved it. My son is 33. He's a combat veteran, five combat deployments. He flies. He's a pilot, Air Force Academy grad. And uh, my daughter is 32, and she's a nurse practitioner. They're both married. I've got, my son has a three-year-old Ellie girl and a one-year-old Theo. My daughter has a four-year-old Braden and a two-year-old Bentley. Bentley jumped off a swing a couple days ago and broke his leg. So uh, little Bentley is hobbling around on, uh, on, a, on a kind of a boot. And um, <clears throat> so I've got four, three, two, one littles. And um, we've been going through it as a family the last two months. Uh, I had a grandson who passed away two months ago. Uh, my daughter lost a child uh, as a stillbirth, and she almost died. Um, they had 20 people working on her in the emergency room. She coded um, at the age of 32, and her BP got down to 70 over 30 and respiration 30. But we praise God, God spared her life, and uh, she's doing much, much better today. And uh, my father died about, well, what is today? Uh, November 13th. My father died a, a month ago yesterday and was a great evangelist and a great missionary founder. There are 15,000 people worshiping in India today in 200 churches because of my father. And uh, so we praise the Lord for my dad's impact. And um, he had had dementia for the last four years. And so people asked me when he passed away, we got to fly down. I pastor in Denver now, but got to fly down to Phoenix and see him before he died and um, just say thank you to him for all he meant to my wife and myself. And, and um, my course he doesn't know me hadn't known me for a long time and um it was a great a great scene about seven months ago or so took my two grandsons to visit him his great grand his great grandsons my mom who's 86 and my daughter and um went to see him and he's fairly incoherent in late stages of dementia <clears throat> and trying to communicate if you've ever had a a, a spouse a father a, a mother die of dementia, you know, it's just a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. Um, it robs them and it robs you. And um, I praise God he's in heaven now and he, he's, he's talking to Jesus, right, who, uh, who he talked about all over the world. My dad preached in every state and 45 countries. Um, <clears throat> so um, anyway, uh, we talked for about a half an hour. I got pictures with him with his great-grandsons and, and he's trying to communicate and he's frustrated and he can't and you can't understand him. And um, so my mom said, would you pray with us? Uh, would, you, would you read scripture and pray? Well, as a pastor, I do that when I go to, you know, to hospitals and things. And so I, <clears throat> I flipped to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Tim, and, and uh, I read down to verse 8. And my dad had been for half an hour trying to talk, and he's just very incoherent and trying to put words together. And as soon as I began to read scripture, and it's a passage he had preached on, I have his outline of that passage, actually. And I'm blessed to have four three-ring binders full of all of his sermons. I have five three-ring binders of every evangelistic meeting he ever had. He preached all over Ohio in the 60s and 70s. 
If you're old enough to remember, you might, you might have heard my dad preach at one time or another. And um, I read through the whole passage, and as I started the passage, he went quiet. For the first time in a half an hour, he just went absolutely quiet. And I got done, and you'd have to know my dad, but I got done and I got to verse 8. We are confident, Paul says. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I got done reading, and the two four-year-old and two-year-olds, they'd gone quiet. Of course, my daughter and, and my mom, they were quiet as I read, but he had gone completely quiet. I got done with verse 8, Pastor, and my dad went, Amen! I mean, you could hear him all the way down the hall. And I looked at my mom and I said, he no longer knows who his son is, but he knows who his Savior is. So I'm, we've been through that over the last couple of months. I will say this. I've worked our, our church at Tri-City for 23 years. We had deaf and signing, and they hated me because I, I talk fast. So... Um, <clears throat> If you can keep up, okay. I'm just gonna say that. I just <clears throat> they. I was I was on the uh, the the most wanted list of pastors we hate the most. So um, top ten. So anyway, we're in John chapter two this morning. Let me get into the text. And the Passover of the Jews, verse thirteen, was at hand. The Passover was at hand. Now let's put it in context. There's three feasts in the pa in the Jewish calendar that you are required to go to. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that we think of the high priest going in the Holy of Holies, that was not one of them. That was not one of them. They had three feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and then they had the, the booths. Okay? So, Passover and Pentecost, we know, think Easter and Pentecost. Passover is in the spring of the year. We know that because Easter moves through our calendar. Why? They operated off a lunar calendar, 13 months in their year, 12 in ours. So that's why Easter moves around. Pentecost is 50 days after that. We just had the privilege of being in Israel on my fifth trip that I directed to Israel. We went to, went to Rome and then went to Israel and then went to Egypt and came home. And I'm doing that again in, in three years, except this time we're going to go to Istanbul, Ephesus in Israel in three years. Every three or four years I take a group. This last time we had 45, I think, in our group. And uh, I go, and, and uh, we were there over Pentecost. And it's a Sabbath. So we know of Pentecost as the church being founded, but actually Pentecost is harvest time. We don't think of early summer as harvest, but in their calendar, early summer is harvest. They're in the, they go, their seasons are earlier than ours because it's so dry. Jesus, they're in Passover, so this is the spring of the year. This is on their calendar, this is the celebration of their of coming out of Egypt. It's interesting, their three feasts are all feasts of thanksgiving. It's a great reminder for us as believers about being thankful, having that attitude of thankfulness. So Passover is thankfulness for being spared the death angel. Pentecost is thankful for the harvest. It's their version of Thanksgiving, harvest season. And then the Feast of Booze is the 40 years that they lived in the wilderness and they had manna come from heaven every day and they lived in tents. So their three feasts of ingathering were all feasts in which they were to be grateful. At these feasts, you had to pay a temple tax. A temple tax had to be paid in is Jewish coinage. It could not be paid in Roman coinage. It had to be paid in Jewish coinage. And I'm giving you this introduction so you'll understand the scenario that Jesus is going to become, be in right now. What the Sadducees, there were three sects in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, 
And then, then there were the others that wanted to overthrow Rome. They were the zealots. So there were really four, but the three main were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They, they did not believe in eternal life. They only believed in the five books of the law. They didn't believe any of the other Old Testament was inspired. And so because they didn't believe in the resurrection, we call them sad, you see. Okay, so if you don't believe you're ever going to see your family again, you're kind of sad, right? So they were the Sadducees. They were the minority, but they ruled the temple. There was one dad and four son-in-laws and sons. That was Caiaphas' house. And for about 40 years, they ruled the temple. They ripped off those pilgrims that came. If you go to an airport today, you go to Cleveland or Denver or New York City, you walk by and there's money changers. Have you ever noticed money changers? Anybody ever traveled abroad? You give them a dollar and they give you nothing. You know, I mean, that's pretty much, and they take a cut off of that. Well, when you came to these feasts, especially Passover, you had to bring a lamb. The number one economy issue for Jerusalem was lamb birthing. That's how they made, that was, their, that was their economy. That and olive oil, because you needed the oil from olive trees to run the temple. So Jerusalem is not on a seaport. It's not on a river. You're Cleveland. You're on a great lake, right? The great cities of the world are on rivers and lakes. Jerusalem is not. It is not where you, it, it's not in a farm country. You go to Jerusalem, it's all rocky. It's horrible farm country. Jerusalem should not be a great city. It's not on a river, it's not on a lake, it's not on an ocean, and it's not in farm country. That's where all great cities are. Jerusalem is not. Its economy was based on temple worship. It was based on the olive. That's why Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an olive tree garden. There's an olive press. They needed thousands of gallons of olive oil to run the lamps and run the temple worship. They also needed thousands of sheep. Thousands because only the purest and best sheep could be sacrificed. So if you have 400,000 Jews from around the world descending on Jerusalem at Passover, you need thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs to be executed. So when you came to Jerusalem, you didn't bring your lamb from Rome. Little, little lamb meh, did not come on the ship with you from Rome. You bought the lamb when you got there. You also had to pay a temple tax when you got there, and you had to exchange money. Those two areas, the Sadducees, were ripping the people of God off. They would go out in the community, and they would say, that's a good lamb, that's a bad lamb. Think mafia. You got some nice little lambs there. It would be too bad if you know. Something happened to your sheepfold. Okay, so I'm not really Italian, so I'm Scots-Irish, so it's, it's a tough thing for me to do, Godfather, okay? So, but they, but they, would, they, they, they could approve your lambs or not approve your lambs. And if they didn't approve your lambs, guess what? You went out of business. So if they approved your lambs, then you could sell your lambs. And, they, and since they own the monopoly, they would... They would Unlike the cryptocurrency guy that just ripped off $50 billion and his whole thing went under yesterday. Um, unlike him, they, they could buy low and sell high because they controlled both ends of the market. Then also when you came and you gave your temple tax, you had to do it in Jewish money. So you would bring your Roman money or your Egyptian money or your Greek money and then they would take a huge cut out of your money. They were ripping the people off but doing it with legality. 
that's what John encounters. Now, let's get one other thing, and I'll, I'll jump into the text. John is writing 25 years after the last gospel was written. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. I'm sure many of you know that. Synoptic means to see, optic, optic, to see. Sin, S-Y-N, means together. So they were the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke see almost all the same stories. They, they, have, they see a lot of the same sayings, maybe a little bit different order. Matthew, stop and think with me, Matthew is a publican. Were the publicans loved by the Jewish people? Yes or no? No. They were hated. They were the Quislings. They were the Benedict Arnolds. They were the traitors because they cooperated with Rome and they ripped the Jewish people off by high taxation. So think about this. Matthew writes to the Jews as a publican. Wow, you had to accept that in faith because no Jew would, write, would accept a publican writing about a Messiah. And what's great to know is that most likely it's Ezra who writes First and Second Chronicles after the return, after the exile. And Matthew uses Ezra's chronology and chronicles written 450 years before to certify that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. Matthew, a publican, writes to the Jews. Luke is the only non-Jew that writes in all of Scripture. He's a Greek, and he writes the book of Luke to Theophilus, a Greek, and he writes that Jesus is fully man, fully God. He is the Son of Man. And Luke emphasizes through the same stories the, the humanity of Christ. You remember when Paul gets to Mars Hill in Acts and he's preaching and they all want to hear what he's saying because they're like, this is the Harvard and Yale and Cornell of the ancient world and this is Ivy League stuff. It's they always like, and Paul gets to what? The resurrection and they stop. <laughs> they didn't believe in that stuff. So when Luke writes the Gentile world and says he's fully God, fully man, he's, he's the, above the pantheon of all Greek mythology gods, and he rose from the dead, that's an act of faith for the Greek to believe that. Then you have Mark, who writes to the Roman world. Mark is the synoptic gobble to the Roman world. Mark writes to the Roman world that the, their great God is not Mars. Remember March? Mars? In March was when the Romans went to war. This is why Julius Caesar is killed on the Ides of March. Julius Caesar was leaving in three days to go to Iraq and destroy the Parthian Empire. And the other senators were terrified that if he came back after conquering all of France, if he conquers all the Middle East, then he will be a dictator for life because they have a celebration in the middle of March to honor the god Mars, who is the great god of the Roman Empire because that's the god of war, because Mars is a red planet. So Julius Caesar is killed right before he goes to war because if he's victorious in March... Do you get where we get the word March from now? You understand? It's in honor of the god Mars. August is Augustus Caesar, the Caesar that was alive when Jesus was born. Augustus, July, Julius Caesar. That's where we get the Julian calendar. All of this is Roman. John is writing 25 years after the last gospel is written. They were synoptics, but they were written to different groups. John now comes along and says, 25 years later, he's a man in his 80s. He hasn't been banished to Patmos yet, but he's in his 80s. And he says, Jesus, I'm writing a book for everybody. For God so loved the 
world. And he's going to write that there are witnesses, and I'm going to use this word quickly, there are witnesses to Jesus. This is not some empty idea, but there are, get the word, marturions to Jesus. There are witnesses, their word for witness that John uses. He writes five books, right? John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He writes five books. Yet the word witness appears 50% of the time in the New Testament. It appears in John's writings. John writes about witnesses, about witnesses, about witnesses, about martyrs, about martyrs, about martyrs. We get our word martyr from the word marturion, which can be translated martyr or witness. Because what happened, the Christian world was witnesses often cost you your life. That's where we get our idea of martyr, a witness. John is going to say there are witnesses to Jesus Christ. And as your, your pastoral team exposits through John, be watching for these witnesses. John is at the end of the apostles. Every one of his buddies is dead. Matthew is dead. James is dead. Every one of his buddies are dead. They're all dead. He's the last martyr for Jesus Christ. When he writes this book. And he said he's synoptic. So I'm going to tell you other things that Jesus said and did. And I have a point of this. That it's to witness that Jesus Christ is God. That you might believe on him. And have life through his name. As the only God. Not Mars. Not Jupiter. Not Saturn. But he is the God. That's why John is going to say. Jesus said I am the way. The truth. Definite articles, the, 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 I am the way, the truth, the life. And then if you missed it, he says, and no one comes to the Father except by me. John is the only gospel writer that says that. You go through the book of John and what you find is, is completely different often stories about what Christ says and Christ does because John has a different point. It doesn't mean they contradict each other at all. It means that they corroborate one another with a different purpose. John in chapter verse 13 says, And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now why did Jesus go up to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem sits geographically on a mountain ridge. So if you think of the, the Mediterranean Sea here, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee over here, you go up to Jerusalem. That's why in the Psalms, you'll see there are Psalms of ascent. And there are Psalms of descent. That doesn't mean you go, oh, that's not what that means. There, you can tell there are reasons I was not leading the singing today, can't you? You just got a, a clue in on that one. They were songs they sang as they went up and traveled to worship. Oh, isn't that a great thing? Instead of arguing in your car when you come to church, turns on psalms of ascent and sing to Jesus instead of yelling at the kids. What a great blessing. <laughs> psalms of ascent. So they had sung their psalms of ascent. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and they're getting ready for Passover. Can you imagine what Passover was like? Secular historians tell us that anywhere between 300 to 500 to 600,000 Jews came to Jerusalem for Passover. If you take one lamb for every five Jews, start thinking how many lambs are being sacrificed over a 24-hour period. 
Think of the narrow streets of Jerusalem filled with lambs. Think of the noise. Think of, think of the population. Here is a city of a couple hundred thousand people at most in its surrounding areas. And three times a year, it balloons three and four times. No wonder when Jesus is born, there was no room in the inn. It balloons. All, you're staying with your in-laws, your relatives, your outlaws. I mean, it doesn't matter. Wherever you can find a place, you're staying. And the sheep are overwhelming. And Jesus is now going to use these ideas in what he's going to talk to them about. And he found in the temple, verse 14, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changer seated. So after I gave you the introduction, do you understand what he's finding? What is he finding? He is finding in the name of God, stealing from the poor. In the name of God, come here and worship. It almost sounds like health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? He found them in the name of God, stealing from God and stealing from God's people. He sees the money changers. And what does he do? Now, there is debate among scholars because in other gospels, Jesus does this activity in Passion Week, <clears throat> chasing them out of the temple and, and, and overturning their tables. My understanding is it's not either or, it's both and. He does it at the beginning of his ministry and he does it at the end of his ministry because the point is, I'm God, this is my house, and you are stealing in my house. He sees them, verse 15, and he made a scourge, scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured, over, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, so <coughs> who are the doves? So let's go back in Jewish history and understand Le Leviticus. The doves were for the poor. If you were a wealthier Jew, you could afford a sheep. If you were not, you could afford a dove. So let's stop and think about what Luke tells us about Jesus, because he has to go up to the temple and be circumcised on his, at his eighth day, right? So which did Jesus' parents, when, they're, when Anna, remember, they're all, oh, this is the hope of Israel. Remember Anna, they all get excited because they see Jesus. What do they remember the firstborn male had to offer a lamb or a dove instead of being child sacrifice the way the pagans did it, you sacrifice, that's Molech. You remember when the children of Israel followed Molech and they, they burnt their children in the fire? Your first child was sacrificed. Instead of that, God said you can sacrifice a lamb. So here's the lamb of God as an eight-day-old boy coming to the temple and what what animal do you remember what animal is offered is it a lamb or a dove a dove that tells us that Mary and Joseph were the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poorest in Israel they sacrifice a dove not a lamb because anybody that could possibly afford a lamb for their firstborn child, it was a status issue. If it, you, could, you would scrimp and save and do everything you could, you wanted to give a lamb. And Mary and Joseph were in so impoverished that they gave a dove for their son. 
Jesus looks at them and John makes the note that the doves are thrown out. In other words, it wasn't enough for them to rip off the tourists, those that were coming from Rome or Egypt that might have had money to make the voyage. It wasn't enough that they were ripping off lambs. Those would have been the middle class and above. They were ripping off the very poorest of the poor because they had doves. Wow. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. So if you're taking notes with me, I would say, first of all, Jesus testifies. Remember, this is, he's, it's witnesses. John is a witness testifying, a witness. Jesus testifies to his authority over his father's house. Jesus testifies, again, if you're taking notes with me, number one, G, you say, you're only on number one? Are you kidding me? The clock says 1215. When do we get out of here? Well, just relax. The battery's dead, and they forgot to change the clock, so it's only... <laughs> Jesus testifies, number one, to his authority over his father's house. His father's house. Let's talk about this house. This house was massive. A son of Esau was building it. Okay, did I help you there? 1,850 years before, there had been this fight between these two 70-year-old guys. You do realize when Jacob tricked Esau out of the birthright, they were 70 years old. So you see in the Sunday school pictures, you know, two 20-year-old kids. These were 70-year-old guys. Esau, Esau comes out of the field and he's been hunting and he's starving. And Jacob is there with lentil soup. How many of you ever had lentil soup? Okay, see, I wouldn't give up a penny for lentil soup, let alone an eternal birthright. I can't think of more disgusting, God-forsaken soup. Because we know, we know what we're going to eat in the millennium is grilled cheese and tomato soup. That, we know that's the, that is what is going to, God's, if you don't like grilled cheese and tomato soup, I got news for you, you got to go to the other place, okay? So, because you're not going in. <clears throat> it's a lot warmer there. It's like Phoenix. So it's a lot warmer there. <clears throat> he sells his birthright for lentil soup, right? He, he, he doesn't think it's important enough. He's a bitter man that he wasn't chosen. He initially, Hebrews tells us that he fornicates and he becomes a profane man because the internal self-absorption that drives bitterness drives you to external self-absorption, which is profanity and immorality. That's why bitter kids fornicate. Because a bitter person is a self-absorbed, I didn't get what I wanted, I wasn't given this, I, should, I deserve better, why wasn't I treated better, I deserve better, I, 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 that leads to bitterness, and all fornication is, I want what I want when I want it with no commitment. Internal self-absorption always works its way out in external self-absorption and external activities. Esau, Hebrew tells us, becomes a profane person. Every child of Esau hated Israel. Whether it's, it's when the prophets of Nob are killed by Doeg the Edomite. <clears throat> whether it's the Edomites that refused to let Israel pass through the land on their way to the Canaan. Whether it was Haman. 
Did you know Haman was an Edomite? He was an Agagite. Agag was a grandson of Esau. Haman, the greatest persecutor of the Jews, wanted to eliminate the entire ethnicity. He is an Edomite. Now you get to Herod the Great, the great builder in Israel. You can go to Israel today and still see the buildings that he built. Ed Herod is an Edomian Edomite. Esau's great 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 grandson. Jesus is Jacob's. You get the picture. Great grandson. Esau's son is now building the temple. Don't you? Does that make? Does that make Christ's sermon in Matthew twenty-four when they say? Jesus, here's the temple. When are you going to go in? The irony to the disciples was Esau's son built the temple for Jacob's son to walk into. Why are you going to take it? And Jesus says, I got news for you guys. Now one stone is going to be slayed on another. Not a single stone is going to be on top of one another. And when you understand that the footer stones of that temple weighed in excess of one million pounds, you can go there and see them today. He says, nothing is going to be laid on another. In other words, Jesus is saying in John 2, this is not Esau's house. This is Jacob, David, and Jesus's house. That's why it's so important for us to understand that Psalm 69.9 is what the disciples remember, and it says, the zeal of the Lord ate him up. Because Jesus Christ owns your body, the temple of Christ. Jesus Christ owns our worship. Jesus Christ owns you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 says you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his, God's. So when Jesus asserts his authority over his house, our application to today is Jesus has authority over your house. Where you go, what you say, what you do, how you act. Are you salt in the world? Are you light in the world? He is the authority over your house, your body. Jesus asserts his authority over his father's house. But number two, if you're taking notes with me, Jesus testifies to his authority over his own body. Number two, if you're taking notes with me, first of all, Jesus testifies to his authority over his father's house, number one. Number two, Jesus testifies to his authority over his own body. Remember, signs and testimony is what John is all about. Jesus is going to give them a sign now that will, they will remember. That's why the Pharisees and Sadducees are going to roll a stone in front of the tomb. They're going to say to, to Pilate, he said that he would rise again in three days. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that sometimes unbelieving world better understands how Christians are to behave than Christians do? Do you know that unbelievers where you work have a higher standard for how you are to live than often you do yourself? In other words, the disciples, how many times in John and the other synoptic gospels do we read, Jesus told them, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to die, and they're like, ah, I don't understand, ah. 
And yet this, what we're about to see, this prophecy, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees remember three years later, and that's why they get a stone and a whole group of soldiers to guard the tomb, because they got what he was saying. They understood better than the disciples. Here's what he says, and his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. That's part of first, verse 1. Then in verse 18, the Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? I mean, my goodness, you just walk in here and you're a Galilean peasant, 30 years old. I mean, you come from the back hick woods of the back hick woods of the back hick woods. You haven't been to seminary. You haven't been to Cornell or Harvard or Yale. Yeah, yeah. And you come in here from the back woods and, and you, you, your family's so poor you offered a dove on, the, on your eighth day circumcision. Who, where do you get, where do you get this authority? And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. <laughs> Therefore, the Jews said, 40 and six years it took us to build the temple. If this is taking place around the year 27 or 28, which most likely it is, it's Herod's son, Antipas. So when you read the Bible and it says Herod, it's a little bit like Pharaoh. Just because it says Pharaoh, it doesn't mean it's the same guy. There could be hundreds and hundreds of Pharaohs, right? There were a lot of leaders. They all took, the, well, in the Herod dynasty, Herod the Great, but he has a son named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is where, where we get Tiberius is founded because Tiberius Caesar was Herod Antipas's friend. So he names a city after him. Caesarea on the coast was named after Octavian Augustus because that would Herod the Great's friend. So Herod Antipas is who Jesus sees on the night he's betrayed. That's the son of Herod the Great. Okay. Who's, who's alive right now is Herod, Herod, Herod Antipas is alive. Herod the Great has passed away. And so Herod Antipas is finishing off Herod the Great's job. Okay, he's completing the temple. And the temple is a masterpiece. <clears throat> the temple sits on a rocky ledge that slopes down to the old city of Jerusalem, David's city. And so what Herod the Great did, the, the old city of Solomon, the Temple of Solomon, was a relatively small temple that sat up on top of the hill. Herod wanted to make it great so that 150,000, 200,000 Jews could be on the temple area. So underneath the temple, he built hundreds of arches. You can, the arches are still there today. When you walk on the, the Dome of the Rock, it's a Muslim holy place today. When you walk there, you're literally walking on hundreds of, of arches that were built so he could extend the flat area as the rock sloped down he built arches underneath to extend the area so that it was flat it he he put million pound stones quarried a couple miles away and brought them in there and at the base of the temple area today you can go down about 40 feet and walk in these narrow causeways and you can see the base of the temple it, they're million pound stones and they were chiseled and put in place and there is not a nail and there is no cement. They were chiseled and placed in absolute perfection. That's what he's talking about. He said, 40 and six years we've been building this and the temple will not be finished for another 20 some years. They're actually in the temple only about 15 years before Titus comes and wipes it all out. They spend over 60 years finishing off the temple, the Jews do, and they worship in it for a handful of years, and then Titus comes and destroys it all. And in the process of the temple in Jerusalem burning in 70 AD, 
the gold was so much in the temple that Josephus tells us that after the Romans dug through the cracks and pulled out the stones because the gold went down into the cracks between the stones, that the gold market in all of the East, gold halved in price because there was so much gold being sold on the open market. That's how much gold was in that temple. This is the temple they're saying. They say, Jesus, it's been 40 and 6 years. I mean, we've been building, and you say you're going to tear it down and build it in three days? But verse 21 says, he was speaking of his own body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. And then lastly, and I'm finished, Jesus testifies to his authority over the hearts of men. And this is what's most important. Number three, Jesus testifies to his authority over the hearts of men. First of all, Jesus testified to his authority over his father's house. Secondly, Jesus testifies to his authority over his own body. And thirdly, Jesus testifies to his authority over the hearts of men. You see, if Jesus can, can be the owner of the house, and if he can be the owner of his body, then he can be the owner of your soul. You notice in verse 23, now when he was at, in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Many believed. Many believed. Have you believed? If I was to say to you today, if you were to die today, my dad died August or October 12th, just a couple of days before his 85th birthday. We had more than one conversation as he was in decline about his confidence that when he stopped breathing, he was going to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Paul says, as he's facing potential execution, which eventually happens under Nero, just a couple of years before Nero at the age of 30 commits suicide or else his Praetorian guard would kill him too. Paul said he was confident that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. Are you that confident today? You say, well, I hope to be, a nice to be, a great to be. I, I hope, I think I've led a pretty good life. Those, those aren't the right answers. Those are all the wrong answers. The Bible says, John chapter 3, you're going to study it in a couple weeks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him. It's not about what you do, it's about what he done. I know it's bad English, but it's great theology. It's about what he done. He said on the cross, John is going to say, have him say, it is finished. And he puts it in a Greek tense, which means the action is in the past, but the results continue indefinitely forever into the future. It's a perfect tense, meaning it is finished and the results, not the action. He's not crucified over and over and over and over again. Not the action continuing, but the results in my heart, in your heart, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not about a, a creed and it's not about a device, but it's about belief in Jesus Christ. And that's John's whole point. Will you believe or won't you? John is going to say in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know, that you might know, that you might know that he is God's Son. That you might know. They believed the scripture and the word which he had spoken. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness, there's that word witness, martyrion, concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew some of the people were not going to believe on him, and he knew some of the people were going to believe on him. He did not commit himself to him to them because they were looking for an earthly political king that was going to get rid of the Romans and set up another Maccabean empire. The Maccabeans were Jewish rebels against the Greeks. The later, the later powers after Alexander the Great in 330 comes to Israel, takes over Israel, and by 168, you have the sons of the sons of the sons of Alexander the Great's generals ruling in Israel and one by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, puts a pig on the altar, desecrates it, and there's a huge war and we get Hanukkah. They reconsecrate the temple on December 25th, 165 B.C. And the Maccabees begin to rule for about 100 years until the Romans come and take that Jewish kingdom away. These people wanted a Maccabean Jewish empire back. They wanted, they weren't so concerned about the spiritual side of it. It was perfunctory. You know how some of you came to church today because you had to, not because you wanted to. Yeah, sometimes even pastors are there. Sometimes that happens. I, I get that. It was perfunctory. They wanted an, they wanted an empire. They didn't want a savior. And Jesus was not going to commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew they wanted a political kingdom, but they didn't want spiritual life. They didn't want belief. The challenge for us today is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And do you believe enough that he died for your sin, that you've received his free gift into your life? And do you know for sure if you died today that you would go to heaven? Do you know that? Jesus said some would fake belief and some were true believers. Let me just tell you this. If you don't know for sure today that if you died, you go to heaven, you can make that decision today. You don't have to put it off. Because you don't know that you die of dementia like my dad. You may die younger than that. Car, walk, heart attack. The most important decision you ever make in your life is what happens to me five seconds after I stop breathing. That's life's most crucial, important question. Jesus said, I have authority over this temple. I have authority over my body. And I have authority over your soul. Have you completely given yourself to Jesus Christ? He's a wonderful master both in the military and in civilian life, I've had some horrible bosses. Anybody ever had a horrible boss? Oh, my goodness. Any of the pastors around here have a horrible boss? No, no, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't, I didn't want to say that. Did I say that quiet part out loud? I, oh, ouch. And I've had some great bosses. Let me just tell you this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's the greatest boss you'll ever have. His load is light. And he gives you peace and he gives you joy. Oh, it doesn't mean you won't have problems. I just told you what the beginning, what the last two months of my life has been like. But you know what? We have eternal joy because right now my grandfather is holding my grandson on his lap. 
I told my daughter after she gave birth and almost died, I said, you know what? Um, I said, Grandpa Sproul is getting to tell your son what a bad little girl you were. And uh, he's getting to uh, share, you know, but when you're a believer, that's not, a, that, that's not hopeless. That's full of joy and full of hope. Because I know I'll see my grandson and I know I'll see my dad. I know I will see them again because I'm confident that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace in our lives. We love you. You are such a great God. I pray that you will work in our hearts and our lives. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just want you to know I always close like this. I never embarrass anybody. Never. I never point anybody out, but I'm going to finish my prayer in just a second. But I always give this because I'm, I'm so burdened for souls of men and women. And it's the most loving thing I can do is to give you a second to think about your soul. How many would say, Pastor Mike, as a confession of my faith, confess means to agree with. That's what the word means. I agree with this statement. I place my faith in Jesus Christ, and I know for sure if I died, I would go to heaven. As a confession of that statement, an agreement with that statement, would you just slip your hand up and hold it up for a second? No one's looking. No one's going to be pointed out. Thank you. God bless you. Amen. Many hands. That's wonderful. Thank you. You can put them down. Is there one person, and I am not going to point you out any more than I didn't point anybody else on the first question. Say, Pastor Mike, I think I'd go to heaven. It'd be great to go to heaven. I'd like to go to heaven. But to be confident, 100% confident, I don't know that I'm 100% confident, but that's a concern of mine because you're telling me today that the Bible says I can be confident of that. You're telling me that that's possible. I'm not sure I'm there. And that's concerning to me. Again, I am not going to point you out. I'm not going to call you by name. But you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, would you just include me in that closing piece of prayer? I'm not going to call you out because I don't know your name, but I'll include you in my mind. God knows who you are. You can say, Pastor Mike, with an uplifted hand, I'm concerned about my soul's eternal place of being, existence. If you'd say that while no one is looking, would you just slip your hand up and hold it up for a second and say, that's me, Pastor. I'm concerned about my soul. Just slip it up, put it right back down. Amen. Father God, thank you. You know the hearts, and you know where each individual is in their relationship with you. I pray that you'll continue to bless this church as it loves you and glorifies you. Thank you for a godly pastor that leads them, and I pray that you'll continue to use them for evangelism both here and around the world. In Jesus' name I do pray. Pastor, come and close as you see.